The New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports, or OASS, provides this podcast as a public service. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the agency or state. This is Addiction, the Next Step. I'm Jerry Gretzinger, your host for Addiction, the Next Step. We're back again with uh, Dr. Chinazo Cunningham, Commissioner of the Office of Addiction Services and Supports. And, you know, uh, Commissioner, we spoke last time about OASIS, what it is, what it provides, what it does. And, and this time I want us to talk more about, you know, you, your background and what you're bringing to the agency, your hopes for it. Uh, so we're going to start... We'll start at the very beginning, right? Uh, tell me about you know you, your background, your upbringing, kind of what what brought you into this area of, of expertise and interest. That um, great. Well, I'm, let me just say I'm I'm really happy to be here today to to talk about my path. Um, so uh, I grew up in California, and I uh, grew up with a single mother uh, and my two sisters. And um, so my mom was a public school teacher. And um, she focused on kids that had a lot of problems, kids who were at risk for dropping out of high school. And so I saw from her um, growing up what it was like to really um, help people who were marginalized and people who were you know, suffering and really had a lot of challenges. And I think that that absolutely stuck with me in my um, you know, adult years. I also spent really my childhood playing sports. Um, we didn't, you know, have a, a lot of money. And I knew that getting a college scholarship that was possible through sports. Um, and so that's how I ended up going to college and, and my sister as well. So I played softball. I went to Northwestern University. And at the time, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I uh, got my degree in psychology and I felt like that gave me uh, a lot of opportunity uh, to go out and do many different things. Um, but while in college, I also ended up sort of on the pre-med track, mm. even though I wasn't totally sure that I wanted to go into medicine. Um, but ultimately, that's what I did, is went from college into medical school. And even in medical school, you know, I wasn't totally sure. I knew that I wanted to work with people and people who... Um, had a lot of need and maybe were underserved, but I, I wasn't sure what that would look like. So I went into primary care, internal medicine. That was what my training was and ended up moving to New York, um, you know, right after medical school um, and came to New York really because of my husband's job. But when I came to New York, what I really was, was uh, influenced by, and this was in the 90s, was HIV. Mm. A lot of people were dying of HIV, young men. Uh, and, you know, it was a very stigmatized condition. And, you know, a lot of people sort of didn't want anything to do with HIV. And for me, that was an area that I felt like I could be very impactful. So, you know, I took a job after I finished training in the Bronx. I worked at um, Montefiore and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And I worked in a federally qualified health center in the South Bronx. And I really saw there how HIV was really destroying people's lives and the community. And what was behind HIV was actually drug use. There were a lot of advances in HIV treatment in the late 90s um, in terms of medication and what I saw was that 
not everybody had access to really life-saving medication. And in fact, the community that I was practicing medicine in wasn't getting the access to treatment. So I ended up um, partnering with a community-based organization. It was a harm reduction organization that really provided social services to people with HIV who used drugs and who were homeless. And they wanted to partner with a medical provider. So I said, sure, why not? I could see that this was definitely a problem in the community that surrounded my clinic. And so for 10 years, I worked with Citywide Harm Reduction and did outreach uh, in the community in the South Bronx and in Harlem. And so one evening a week for 10 years, I uh, went out with the outreach team and went door to door in single room occupancy hotels. So knocking on doors to see if people who were HIV positive and used drugs and who were homeless, if they needed medical care, if they had medical questions. Um, And so from that experience, you know, I realized... a lot more was needed than just me, uh, one doctor going out one evening a week. And so uh, I developed a program with Citywide Harm Reduction to really uh, provide services to people who needed these services. And so a team of doctors, nurse practitioners, along with uh, people with lived experience, would then go out into these um, single-room occupancy hotels regularly and provide services there, would provide services at the drop-in center of Citywide Harm Reduction, and then would also provide services at our community clinic. So that was really, for me, an, an, uh, an entree into what harm reduction was mm-hmm. and how important it was and how important it was to really get outside of the walls of the clinic and meet people where they were. Yeah. Now, so I just want to jump in here. So you said you were doing, you were literally going out door to door to have these services be available to people where they were. Was that something that had, that was not happening prior to yes, that point? Right. No, no, no. it wasn't happening at all. I mean, so this was a whole new way of thinking about how to deliver care. And I think for me, part of um, what I've always worked on and thought about was like, why do we deliver care the way that we deliver care in this country? Why are, why is it really more about like making the lives of the doctors and the healthcare settings that's the focus, not necessarily on the patients. And so for people that are marginalized, right, we got to make the care more accessible. And we have to think about them as the center rather than the healthcare setting as the center. And so, you know, if we're going to really improve people's lives, we have to think about delivering care differently. And so it's through this outreach, through, you know, reducing barriers and through this harm reduction approach about meeting people where they are. It, it almost, uh, as you're describing that, it makes me think it's a whole new era of uh, making house calls, like yes. go, going out to the people where they are with what they need. Absolutely. So how? So you talked about how that sort of was like your first entree into you know harm reduction and, and seeing a better way to deliver that. So you were doing that, you were working with HIV AIDS and people who needed those services. Take us to the next part where then that sort of morphed into more of the addiction services. Right. As treatment for HIV continued to get better and better and as people you know lived longer lives and HIV basically was no longer a deadly disease, what was happening in this country was that more and more opioids were you know, being prescribed and more and more people were dying of overdose from opioids. So there was a shift in the landscape in terms of what was happening in this country. In addition, at that time, and this is the early 2000s, 
buprenorphine be, uh, was FDA approved for the treatment of opioid use disorder. So this was actually a game changer because up until that time, only methadone was available for the treatment of opioid use disorder, and you had to receive methadone treatment in the specialized opioid treatment programs. I did not work in an opioid treatment program. I worked in a federally qualified health center. So up until this time, I didn't really have treatment options to offer. But when buprenorphine became approved, all of a sudden for me, it became very clear that this was going to be a game changer. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the community that I served would have access to buprenorphine treatment just like other communities. And so at that time, it was brand new. And myself and two other colleagues, we started the buprenorphine treatment program at Montefiore. So, at, so I kind of shifted really my focus from HIV to more of addiction and started treating addiction in a regular internal medicine primary care program. And that was really a new concept as well is to treat addiction more where people were getting their hypertension or their diabetes or their heart disease treated. And this was important because there was a lot less stigma right? So if you go in to see your doctor, your primary care doctor, it's nobody's business as to if you're there for diabetes or you're there for addiction. And so that opened the door for people who might not have otherwise gone to, um, you know, opioid treatment programs. Because by someone walking in that door, someone else isn't going to say, oh, they have this situation going on. Right, exactly. In addition, you know, because buprenorphine was not um, nearly as regulated at the federal level as methadone, there was a lot more flexibility in terms of buprenorphine treatment. So I could prescribe the medication to somebody and see them once a month or even once every other month because they could get refills on the medication. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people were very interested in getting treatment uh, kind of in that scenario rather than needing to come nearly daily in a methadone program. So after starting to do that... I'm assuming at some point you thought, okay, there needs to be more of this. I want to get involved in making this more widely available. Absolutely. Yeah. So over the next 10, 15 years, you know, um, really I worked to change the culture of primary care to say it's our job to treat addiction, not just the diabetes and the heart disease. And that, you know, changing culture is hard. Yeah, <laughs> it takes yeah. a lot of time and effort. And it's, it, you know, so I really worked, you know, doctor to doctor to doctor to clinic to clinic to really try and change uh, really the approach around treating addiction. So, you know, over 15 years, it's, or my program started with three doctors and we ended up training hundreds of doctors. Um, we went from one clinic to having seven clinics across the Bronx, really incorporate buprenorphine treatment um, and, you know, really shaping also uh, national treatment guidelines and thinking about how we should be delivering care and primary care and really just pushing the envelope to say, we got to do better in this country, right? We really need to be expanding the, uh, you know, the opportunities for treatment of addiction. So there was some pushback initially when you said we need to do more of this? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think, again, there's a lot of stigma. There's stigma in healthcare settings of people sort of saying, I don't want, quote unquote, those patients in our waiting room. And of course, you know, those patients already are in our waiting rooms and, quote unquote, those patients are us, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers. 
And so, you know, really changing the hearts and minds of people uh, is absolutely part of the process as well. So when you started doing that kind of work, that was how long ago? Um, so that was in the early 2000s. All right. So here we are in 2023 now. And uh, how, what kind of progress do you feel has been made towards, towards changing that stigma, getting more of that primary care delivery option available? Yeah, there's, we've made huge strides um, across the state and across the country. And I think, um, you know, there's been a shift in people really saying it is my job to really treat addiction. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's become more challenging to push back because more and more people are dying than ever before. And what I would also say is, you know, the newer generation of healthcare providers have essentially grown up with the overdose epidemic. And so they uh, are more likely to embrace the fact that this is part of the job um, than older people who, you know, have been practicing medicine for many, many years. When they went to medical school, they didn't get any training. When they, you know, when they were in their residency, they didn't get any training. And so, and so that's changing too, where now, you know, this needs to be part of the curriculum in medical schools, nursing schools, you know, social workers, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, there's much more um, uh, work to sort of build this in uh, to all kinds of training and for people to see this as their responsibility in healthcare. And then for, uh, you know, agents, agencies like us and the federal government to really provide that support and, um, and you know, encourage more people to go into this field. So I, I would imagine uh, as the commissioner of OASIS, that is one of the top things you're hoping to continue to, to push for. What else is on that list? Like if you had, you know, the, the, the top things that you want to make sure you achieve or work towards while you lead this agency, what, what, what is on that list? Right. So definitely um, expanding treatment and services is, is a huge part of that. And, and really thinking about the evidence-based uh, services. And so the top of that list is medication treatment um, for opioid use disorder, because as more and more people are dying, we need to make sure that these life-saving, effective medications are available. So that is, you know, absolutely a top priority. And part of that, you know, includes the making sure that there's the workforce to be able to offer uh, that medication treatment. Um, harm reduction is absolutely a priority. Um, we need to focus on keeping people alive. We need to provide a harm reduction approach so that the that medication treatment is available um, is accessible, that we bring it out to the communities that need it so we meet people where they are, um, and that we also have harm reduction um, supplies like naloxone and fentanyl test strips so that people can stay alive. And then the third uh, priority focuses on equity. So, uh, you know, certainly as a physician practicing medicine in the Bronx, the South Bronx, uh, nearly all of my patients were black or Hispanic. And I saw up close in front the destruction that our drug policies in this country had on the people uh, that I was treating and in the communities that I served. Um, and our policies have been racist. Our drug policies have been racist. And we need to acknowledge that. And going forward, we need to correct that and not make the same mistakes. And so if you look at, you know, who's dying, uh, those who are dying at the highest rates are black or Hispanic or um, Native Americans. If you look at who's getting treatment, 
the numbers don't match those who are dying. So more, you know, there are, are disproportionately more white people getting treatment than black and Hispanic or Native American, yet those are the populations that are dying at the highest rate. So we have work to do. You know, we have to acknowledge this. We need to make sure that we're collecting the data and asking these questions, and then we're targeting our services and our um, resources to the communities that are, that are at the highest risk. And I know, like, with a lot of the items we've talked about when it comes to equity, Again, it's 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 a it's a retraining, it's a relearning, doing things differently, and that can be a challenge. Absolutely, and you know, I think when we talk about equity, certainly race and ethnicity are at the top of the list, but it's also not the only thing, right? So we have to think about equity in terms of you know LGBTQ status because we know that the LGBTQ community is at also higher risk for addiction than than the general community. We also have to think about geography, rural areas versus urban areas are different kinds of challenges. We need to make sure that people who live in rural areas also have access to life-saving treatment too. So, you know, th there's there's a, a, a host of things to think about with equity. You know, I think the bottom line is we have to know who's at the highest risk and we have to make sure that those individuals do have accessible services available. So it, it sounds like the items at the top of your list all have to do with some sort of significant change. And we know change is not easy for everybody. Right. Um, but we, we can't do things, you know, just because that's the way that we've been doing them for the last 50 years. And, and frankly, in the field of addiction, I, I really think that a lot of our approaches are antiquated mm -hmm. because addiction um, services are really highly regulated by the federal government. Um, changing them is challenging, um, but more and more people are dying and we can't just keep doing the same thing. We have to think differently. We have to think outside of the box um, because we can't wait any longer. Yeah. And, you know, we keep talking about the, the overdose epidemic and that there's more people dying. In, in your experience and your knowledge, has there been a time that was more concerning, more, more significant in terms of there needs to be something done now? We need different thinking because too many people are dying or, or is that, are we at that point right now? We are at that point right now. Um, this is the worst uh, uh, ever on record in this country in terms of the uh, number of overdoses that are happening. This is fueled by fentanyl, um, which is very deadly. And so everybody's at risk. Uh, people who use heroin, people who use cocaine, people who were getting pills from the internet that are counterfeit, all of, the, all of those people are at risk for overdose death. And now we even have xylazine uh, in, in the drug supply. And so xylazine is not an opioid. It's a sedative. It's, it's a, a, a substance that is not even used for human consumption. It's a, a substance that's used in veterinary medicine. And um, it's increasing the risk of death even more. So, you know, there's who knows what the next contaminant's going to be. Um, but certainly right now, it's a very deadly combination of what's out in the drug supply. And so we need all hands on deck. We need all approaches um, to really address this. Um, you know, I think if it weren't for COVID, which has obviously been a huge public health emergency, um, you know, this, this, this would be the most deadly thing we've ever experienced. Mm. Um, and no community is protected, right? It's everywhere. Um, overdose deaths are happening all in every state, in every city, every community, in young and old, in black and white, in poor and in rich. So, um, 
you know, it is the time to do things differently and to have all hands on deck because we need to make sure um, that people are staying alive. Um, and then you know, we'll wrap up after this, uh, but I just wanted to ask you, I, I, I feel like sometimes just people, community, they just, they get a little complacent. They, they hear about something, they hear about something is bad and then they go, oh yes, this is terrible, but then they, it kind of drops off their radar. Things haven't gotten better but they just kind of sit back and go, oh, oh yeah, that's still a problem. But yeah, I mean, things have not gotten better. In fact, they've only gotten worse. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate that, that there's some complacency. Frankly, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is addiction. I think if this was any other uh, illness, there would be a different approach. Um, and, and that really goes back to the root of the stigma around addiction. But I do think, you know... I am hopeful because attitudes are changing. People are recognizing that uh, addiction is a medical condition. We need a public health approach. There's more investment now than ever uh, in addiction services. And people are also willing to think about addiction differently and embrace harm reduction. So while you know we are at the worst point ever, I also am very hopeful because there is a change that, that we're seeing and um, people's willingness to sort of talk about and think about addiction differently and have a different approach. A lot of uh, important work being done by yourself, by this agency. If people want to reach out, 877-8-HOPE-NY is our hope line, oasis.ny.gov, uh, all kinds of resources. Commissioner, thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with us and everybody out there listening. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for checking out this episode of Addiction, The Next Step. I'm Jerry Gretzinger. Our producer is Isabel Beyond. If you have something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email us about it. It's communications at oasas.ny.gov. That's oasas.ny.gov.